As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Thanks so much for tuning in to the first Zonal Marking podcast of 2021. This pod is brought to you by The Athletic and it's a a new year, but very much the same us. And by us, I mean myself, Ali Maxwell, and with me, Michael Cox from The Athletic and also Tom Warville. Happy New Year to you, Tom. How's it going? All well? Thanks, Ali. Happy New Year to you too. Yes, all good. Thank you. A nice extended break. Um, mm. I realised I think I worked three days uh, in December, which was fantastic for my mental health. Um, <laughs> so yeah, feeling feeling fully re- re- refreshed, recharged and uh, ready to go for 2021. Just to tick the start of pod small talk box uh, and a topical one i was going to ask you if you've got any new year's resolutions for 2021 but in thinking about it i realize you probably call them life's marginal gains oh wow that's really quite depressing (laughs) um i think yeah my well i had a couple of new year's resolutions first is trying to get up earlier in the day uh which so far going going well and the other is going to the gym more but um given recent news that one is uh yeah it's proving difficult to to do at the moment but um yeah so far, so good. Where there's a will, there's a way. Um, Michael, how are you doing? Happy New Year to you. I'm very well, thank you. Happy New Year. And uh, yeah, Happy New Year to all the listeners as well. Very Happy New Year to the listeners. I'm, I'm sad you got to say that before I did. Um, are you heading into 2021 with any tactical tweaks in, in Michael Cox's life? No, uh, <laughs> no, pretty much the same. We do have a new analytics writer on board uh, who Tom can probably tell the listeners more about but yeah quite exciting and probably more uh, more kind of graphs and more stats and more figures and if you like that kind of thing which you hopefully do if you're listening to this podcast then there should be more of that on the site the Marcelo Bielsa approach no compromise whatsoever I, I wouldn't have expected anything different uh Tom a new analyst on The Athletic, not a rival of yours, but a co-worker. That's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. We've um, we've recently signed Mark Carey, who has done some public work uh, with um, in kind of the analytics space before, and he's recently finished a project with a, a championship club looking at um, how they can translate performances and stats from other leagues to understand whether a player would perform just as well in, in the championship, which I think was really exciting. So um, yeah, look forward to getting Mark on board and set up. He will be picking up some 
of the kind of more ad hoc requests and then in time kind of adding his own work to the site, um, which in turn kind of frees me up to do more, uh, I guess, bigger projects like the one we're, we're chatting about today. Oh, go on then, Coxie. What are we chatting about today? Uh, we're chatting about Frank Lampard and we're chatting about Chelsea. And yeah, after the recent poor run of results, there's been a lot of speculation about Lampard's job and maybe about what his uh, what his goal is as a manager or at least as a manager at Chelsea. And uh, yeah, me and Tom have been digging into the numbers and I've been kind of looking at some of the past performances, particularly in the big games this season. And uh, yeah, we've we've come to some conclusions in an article mm. that's out today on the website. And uh, yeah, I thought we'd make a, a good podcast from it as well. Yeah, in conjunction uh, with a Warville and Cox special on the athletic site about this very topic. But it would be remiss not to mention the brilliant Chelsea coverage on there as well and coverage of, of all Premier League sides, of course. Simon Johnson and Liam Toomey do a wonderful job. In fact, it was mere moments after the final whistle on Sunday after that 3-1 defeat to Manchester City that their piece went live suggesting that uh, Chelsea have begun to explore alternative plans with a view to replacing Lampard if the current slump continues if not sooner. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And just a reminder to anyone listening uh, that now is as good a time as ever to sign up to The Athletic and become an annual subscriber. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking will see you get an annual subscription and you'll pay just £3.99 a month. So if you want to read everything that Michael and Tom churn out, uh, the new analyst Mark and many others, then please do join today. And now let's get into Chelsea. We're going to try and, and dissect as well as we can and in the only way that we know performances and results, tactics, of course, the underlying data, any issues with individual players, uh, what's gone well, of course, and whether the guys think that Lampard can ride this out. This being a run of four defeats in seven matches, they've dropped down to ninth in the table. This run was preceded by a 17-game unbeaten run across all competitions. So um, let's start with these two runs. Michael, What's been going wrong for Chelsea in this recent poor run of form? I'd say more than anything else, they've been let down in the two penalty boxes and in terms of the finishing at one end and the goalkeeping at the other end. We know that they haven't really had a consistent centre-forward. They've used Abraham, they've used Giroud, they've used Werner in the centre-forward position. All of them have done some good things at some stages, but they don't really have a cohesive plan in the final third. I'd also point to the fact that Timo Werner, I think we all know he's struggling for goals. There's been some decent analysis of him uh, and his finishing by by Alan Shearer on the Athletic website. But I mean, the stat that I think says more than anything is the fact he's hit the woodwork five times this season, uh, which is more than anyone else in the Premier League. So I just think the finishing is letting Chelsea down. At the other end, I think it's fair to say that Mendy has been an upgrade on Kepa. I don't think it's harsh to say he probably couldn't have got much worse than Kepa's performance last season. But his really good run in the first few weeks has slightly slipped back. And um, yeah, Tom came up with some very good numbers to show that while for the first seven or eight Premier League games, he was basically saving more shots than you'd expect, you know, when you account for the the positions of the shots and and where they were directed. Um, But in the last few weeks, he slipped behind it. And he's made a couple of mistakes. I think that the mistake for the Bamford goal um, at Stamford Bridge in a game Chelsea eventually won against Leeds it was notable. It just looked like he was uncomfortable sweeping. It was a poor decision. And there was also the concession of the penalty when he brought down Dominic Calvert-Lewin again when sweeping. Quite a quite a poor mistake, I thought. Um, and that allowed Sigurdsson to score from the penalty spot. So, yeah, I think there's some issues. Obviously, um, 
in the vast expanse of, of uh, pitch between the boxes, uh, which we'll come on to talk about, I'm sure. But I think, I mean, if Chelsea's goalkeeping and finishing had been at, you know, inverted commas, normal levels, I think Chelsea would be in the top four and we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. Tom, we're going to talk more generally about the season as a whole, the underlying numbers, but currently we're discussing this recent poor run of form. Uh, does what Michael says get backed up when you look at the numbers? Any key drop-offs, any hints as to what's been going wrong? So Chelsea are at one end of kind of, they've scored more than expected actually. They've based, basically had 1.4 XG4 per game and they've scored nearly you know 1.7 goals per game. So that's a, a pretty big jump and you know, some players, I think Tammy Abraham um, specifically has, has finished pretty well so far this season, but then you've got Werner who actually is, is undershot his expected goals. And at the other end, Chelsea are have got really, really solid defensive numbers in terms of expected goals against. Just sorting the table by that, they've got the fourth highest um, behind Liverpool, Brighton of all teams, and uh, Manchester City. Um, they've conceded a little bit more than expected, so you'd think that overall in the long run, those two numbers would kind of come in line together by the end of the season and, and Chelsea near enough are, are probably the fourth best team in the league so far this season so I do think that the the recent kind of dry spell and getting four points in in six games so out of a possible 18 isn't great obviously for any team that's challenging for the top four or the title in the season as close as this one um, but it does feel that there's just been a bit of a misfortune and the underlying levels aren't too bad and and definitely better than probably expectation and, and the narrative currently suggests they are. Okay, well, I mean, quite a positive start, I would say, more so than I was expecting anyway. General narrative surrounding Chelsea in the last few days has been very negative, as you'd expect, as is always the case with the uh, with the customary Premier League side in crisis at any given time. Um, but, Michael, in the last eight, uh, they've played five of the teams above them and they've not beaten any of them. In fact, if you stretch it over the course of the season, um, they're in ninth. They've played seven of the eight teams above them in the league, Chelsea, and they haven't won in any of those games. Is there one clear reason for you why that is? why that has been the case? Yeah, I mean, this then becomes a discussion more about what they're doing in midfield, I'd say. I think the, the poor finishing and poor goalkeeping has probably cost them in a few games that they've drawn against weaker sides. In the games against bigger sides, and in particular, I'm thinking about 2-0 loss to Liverpool earlier in the season, the 3-1 defeat to Manchester City the weekend, and also the 3-1 against Arsenal, who I know, looking at the table, are not a big club. But that still feels like a big game to me. I think their pressing in midfield has been quite poor. And when I look at the shape of Chelsea, it's like Lampard very much wants Chelsea to press. But the actual organisation, the actual details, the actual specifics behind that don't seem to be there. And quite quite often, I think Chelsea are just quite easy to pass through. Uh, I think sometimes the defensive midfield is too high and leaves too much space behind. Sometimes the, the three in midfield seem to be doing almost the same job and, and end up in the same zones. Um, and sometimes there's just... Uh, yeah, there's just an uncoordinated nature to the midfield. Sometimes one of the midfielders is really high, the other two are deep, or two really high, one is deep. And they're just quite easy to play through. Um, I don't think that's been an issue in some of the other big games, uh, sorry, in, in some of the other smaller games, because I think the defence is quite well organised. You know, I think Thiago Silva has uh, generally been very good. I'd actually say much better than I expected. I thought he might struggle a bit in terms of pace, but he's been really good. But I think sometimes against the, the really big sides, you know, that hasn't been enough uh, to prevent them being opened up. So, yeah, I would say without the ball and particularly how they're trying to win it back, 
that's the area for me that Lampard has to take full responsibility for and can't really blame his players for, for underperforming. That's just an organisational issue. And I think that has cost them in the big games. And Tom, I mean, uh, against the teams below them, they've often scored a fair few goals. Three against Brighton, four against Palace, three against Burnley, four against Sheffield United, uh, three against Leeds and West Ham as well. But uh, in those bigger games against the teams above them, uh, they're just not doing it offensively at all no I mean if you look at the the XG and the quality chances they produce in games against Everton Tottenham Man United they are some of the lowest that they've produced in, in kind of any game this season and those those games against Spurs and Man U specifically are in kind of the bottom 10 games in the Premier League this season in terms of total XG in the fixture which says that just those are just really dull drab kind of slow boring affairs and I think that plays into some uh, kind of risk averse nature that that Lampard seemingly has against bigger sides there's there's just an inability to either create chances or take risks which just makes them kind of quite dull dull games now the the Everton game I think that um, Chelsea had 71% possession in the end which obviously is a, a really high number and to some extent shows the the impact of Everton kind of shelling. They sat back after Gilby Sigurdsson scored his penalty and and didn't really look to threaten afterwards. And then again, it's a, another example really of this season of a team who, kind of like we saw with, with Liverpool against Southampton, not really having a, a solid plan to try and break through a, a low block, a deep block, and, and actually try and create good quality chances. As soon as you said risk averse there, I, the image of that first half against uh, Tottenham, the nil-nil game that you referenced there, where Spurs, if you remember, had just come off the back of beating, I think it was Manchester City, um, with the first goal having been in transition and Kane and Son involved. And you could just see that no one in Chelsea Blue wanted to be the one to give it away in Tottenham's half and be the one to be at fault essentially for for a, a period of transition that, that Spurs scored from. And in the end, we had, as you mentioned there, one of the most drab games that we've seen this season. Um, more positive times. I mean, I mentioned before this run, it was 17 unbeaten in all competitions. I believe it was nine in the league, of which five were wins and four were draws. Michael, looking back at that time and comparing it to this poorer run and what stands out what was going well there that hasn't been going well recently well the back four was solid I think by and large as I said before I think they were getting lots of goals from defenders and from set pieces particularly Kurt Zuma but Chilwell I think as well was was popping up uh, with a with a goal scoring threat Reese James as well uh, with with a goal at Brighton um, and I think they were very good down the right particularly when Ziyech and Reese James have combined. I think they have a really good relationship. That said, it was an easy run of games. I mean, I remember doing a podcast at that time and having to, you know, talk about why Chelsea were playing well. And, and it really just seemed like December was going to be a much bigger test for them because of the difficulty of fixtures. And as I say, I think, um, I think against stronger opposition, the organisational problems in the midfield have become uh, more obvious. Yeah, th this midfield already mentioned a few times, hinted at already uh, in the early parts of the pod. Let's tackle it head on now, followed by other various bits of this Chelsea side. I mean, midfield balance. In terms of, of, of what Chelsea are achieving or not here, a lot seems to come back to N'Golo Kante and Jorginho and how to fit them together, how to get the best out of them, how to fit them into a well-balanced midfield. And, and Michael, what's ridiculous is that I feel like 
this has been part of the Chelsea conversation for about two and a half, three years now. Uh, where do you fall in this Kante, Jorginho, who should play where debate? Yeah, you're right. It's the third season, isn't it? One of Surrey and now two of Lampard. I mean, I must say, I think Kante has been quite poor in, in recent weeks, particularly in those big games um, against uh, Arsenal and Manchester City. I think he's been quite clumsy with the way that he receives the ball, quite slow on the turn often just has, has basically played passes straight to opponents. Um, he's still a, a pretty good ball winner when you look at the stats, but I think he has been caught out of position more. I think he's conceding quite a lot of fouls, one of uh, which was crucial in the loss to Arsenal because Granit Xhaka uh, slammed the free kick into the top corner. I do prefer Jorginho there, albeit I do really like Jorginho from his Napoli days, and I think it's fair to say he's never quite got to that level at Chelsea. I think it's interesting that for the first, for the final half hour against Manchester City, when the game was probably dead, uh, Lampard threw on Billy Gilmore, who I would say is broadly speaking a Jorginho-type player. He's got the same kind of build. He's got a good passing range. He's much more a technical player than he's a ball winner like Kante. And I do wonder whether that could be an option in upcoming weeks. Um, at the base of midfield. I think it's interesting that for other teams that seem to play with a 4-3-3 and have that kind of three or that trio of central midfielders, you usually have uh, like City with Rodri and, and Liverpool with Fabinho. Usually if he's fit, they usually definitely just have one sitting player like the, the Jorginho role who isn't the most agile or able to move around the pitch, but they either excel in breaking up play um, or being able to progress the ball forwards. I mean, I did a piece not so long ago now about Rodri, indirectly about Rodri really, and, and his quality both under pressure and ability to break lines. And it feels like it for you know for Lampard, if you're having the base of your trio as someone who's a bit of a energetic, I was going to say headless chicken, but it is definitely, there's, there's just a good level of energy that Kante brings. You probably have to balance that out with the other two being a bit more... Uh, you know, hoping to or being okay with kind of sitting and not really doing as much work. And with with Mount on one side, who again is super energetic, really aggressive, happy to kind of push forward and press. And Kovacic on the other side, whose main strength really is carrying the ball and therefore doesn't really offer a level of protection because he's, you know, the value you get from him having him there is his him venturing upfield. It's kind of hard to understand what the balance is that Lampard's trying to find there. So, yeah, I kind of agree with Coxie that, you know, the Jorginho Gilmore type on paper definitely seems like one that holds the key to the puzzle a little bit. But then the, the waters are kind of murkier further when you think about Kai Havertz and he has predominantly played in kind of one of the, the midfield slots for Chelsea so far this season. Isn't really a winger. Can't really fit him in on the wing if you've got Pulisic uh, and Ziyech on the other side. So it's, I don't know, it's, it feels like a bit of a house of cards which A, hasn't really been set up right to begin with and B, can can quite easily fall down if you're not getting the right pieces in the right places from this point onwards. I just want to pick your brains a bit a bit further on, on Havertz because I know that you've been back and looked at his time with Leverkusen where he played in a number of different positions and he did a number of different things for that Leverkusen side at times, almost their primary goal scorer but also at times a, a creator. I mean... Do you have any indication or any thoughts on where he might fit into this Chelsea team or in an ideal situation uh, in the future? Because at the moment, among the fan base, you can imagine there's quite a lot of head scratching at this £70 million signing that doesn't appear to have a natural place in this team. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's there's going to be a piece that Liam Toomey um, is going to, is writing at the moment essentially on, on, on Habits, which... Um, 
yeah, will be really interesting to read on kind of his thoughts there. But it does feel that, you know, Havertz's value, the reason he was brought to Chelsea was because of the impact he had at Leverkusen, where he played predominantly as an attacking mid that drifted in from the left, or even at times as a striker as well. Um, and Leverkusen, a bit like Leipzig with Timo Werner, uh, were predicated on a really high energetic pressing game. They moved from back to front really quickly. They've relied on on speed on the wings with Karim Bellarabi, Leon Bailey, Moussa Diaby. And it's just a totally different environment that Havertz finds himself in at Chelsea now. I remember Liam did a great piece about um, Kai as well at Leverkusen and his value kind of in the air. And it just doesn't feel at all like his his ability as an attacking mid to, to attack the ball in the air is getting used at all in this Chelsea system. So, yeah, it's, again, Werner is a, a player who excelled in a transition-based team and attacked at speed. Havertz is a player who excelled in a high-pressing team who attacked at speed and transition. And they've gone to a Chelsea team that is doing, isn't really doing that that well at all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think just looking at other areas of the team, you've touched on the goalkeeper, Mendy, who had a, a fabulous first few weeks and, and less so in the last few weeks. I guess we kind of wait to see where his base level will, will settle. Um, the the defence you both seem fairly happy with, to be to be honest, both as a unit and as the individual um, players. The midfield we've mentioned here, just not quite the right balance. Uh, Disorganised pressing, not helping in, in many individual matches. What about the final third? Because I suppose in this 4-3-3, you're also looking for balance in your front three. Um, and I think it's fair to say that, that it hasn't necessarily been found, although there have been flashes of brilliance this season. Michael, should we start with the number nine conundrum, Giroud or not Giroud, as uh, as you guys have have, have have sort of discussed in your piece, um, what do you make of how Lampard has approached selecting his central striker this season? Yeah, it's been funny. They've got three options, haven't they? They've got Giroud, who's the pure target man. They've got Werner, who purely about speed, I would say. And then they've got Tammy Abraham, who's somewhere uh, in between. I really like Giroud. I've always liked Giroud. I think he brings players into the game better than anyone around, better than anyone in the Premier League. And I think Chelsea do have players who, who want that kind of forward. I think one of them is Werner. He wants to run off a, you know, a, a striker who's occupying defenders, maybe creating space for him. I think Pulisic is another um, who wants to play one-twos. I do understand why Giroud didn't start the weekend against Manchester City because I think they, you know, you want someone who's going in behind the defence. But Chelsea didn't really offer any of that, really. They didn't offer anything from Werner with his runs in behind. So I think it's a difficult situation for Lampard. I'm not sure that there's a there's an obvious solution for every week. I think he is going to have to pick things tactically. But just in recent weeks, I'm not completely sure he's got those decisions right. And obviously, the longer that goes on with such a talented uh, attacking section of the side, hmm. the, uh, the longer, you, well, the more people will start to ask questions. It feels like much of Chelsea's best attacking 
work this season has been excelling down the sides. Now, whether that was a, a, a few games in which Rhys James and Hakim Ziyech were really dovetailing nicely and offering such a, a threat, specifically from crosses, um, whether it's Pulisic and Chilwell, who have a slightly different vibe down the left, but who, who you could see growing into a really good combination. I mean, is it as simple as saying that, as as many of the fan base were um, after about half an hour of seeing Werner through the middle on the weekend, that you really... It just everything points to having Giroud or Abraham up top because you know Giroud is the archetypal target man and and plays very well with his back to goal. But I feel like Abraham's potentially a little underrated in that sense as well. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of intrigued that there's been no mention of playing Giroud or Abraham in kind of the Yusuf Paulson role that that um, Werner kind of doubled up with at Leipzig. Um, Leipzig, you know, usually played a four-two-two-two. Um, the two front men would usually be a kind of small nimble forward in, in Werner and a more physical presence in Paulson who essentially just disrupted made a nuisance of himself and, and allowed Werner to kind of use his speed to profit from that so I'm, I'm kind of surprised we've not seen that at least trialed at some point but then again you know we're at the point of, of Lampard's reign where you probably can't get away with experimenting uh, too much otherwise that maybe is sending the wrong signals but yeah like you're saying Ali I'm, I definitely think there's potentially something on the numbers where we'll see a bit of a resurgence from maybe Pulisic in, in the coming weeks. He, I think whenever I watch him, he's always really bright, really, really positive, trying to go forward. Maybe decision-making isn't the best at times and tries an extra take-on or dribble when he should maybe lift his head and look for the pass. But, I mean, he's got one goal for the season. I think his XG is close to three and he's got no assists and his the quality of chances point to him maybe if you know having one assist to his name so far this season so I do think that in the the coming weeks um if he can stay fit he's got hamstrings made out of chocolate it seems that he uh he will be able to kind of add a lot more value down the left for Chelsea and I mean we're, we're kind of realizing as we speak I think that the sheer volume of players that Lampard has to use uh, can both be a help and a hindrance because Michael uh, Hudson Adoy has been very bright in recent substitute spells. Is that someone that you'd like to see more of? Yeah, I must be honest. Until this season, I wasn't a huge Hudson Adoy fan. I just wasn't convinced by his his efficiency in the final third. Albeit that is something that that tends to come with a bit of experience, and you know, after two or three seasons as a as a Premier League player. But yeah, I mean, he was very bright against Arsenal as a substitute. He scored at the weekend as a substitute. And I think it was a little bit of a surprise he didn't start at the weekend because Ziyech was, was returning from injury. He's been very good. As I say, usually when he's combining with, with Rhys James, and I thought maybe with Azpilicueta there, probably wasn't going to offer a lot going forward. Maybe you would just want the speed of Hudson-Odoi against a, a Manchester City side playing higher up the pitch and with a left-back in Zinchenko, who is not the best defender. Um, so yeah, I was a bit surprised he didn't start. But I think Lampard has tended to to reward good performances. You know, he did that with Giroud. When Giroud came into the side, scored four in the Champions League, he then started a, a couple of games and got a run. So I think Hudson-Odoi uh, might well get a run in the side. But again, it's about how Lampard, you know, uses his players around that. If if he's playing a 4-3-3 and Hudson's on the, uh, Hudson-Odoi is on the right, that means that presumably Pulisic and um, Werner would be on the left because Werner hasn't played well up front. So then you've got Two doesn't go into one. Who do you pick between those two? Like you say, they've got a lot of players there. And that's without considering Kai Havertz, who, you know, as we said before, I think is probably the biggest question mark of, of them all at the moment. We've kind of discussed how, given the potential strengths of the team uh, and in wide delivery, especially that Giroud and Abraham seem 
um, probably more of a natural fit than than uh, a Werner as a number nine. Michael, what have you made of him playing off the left? Obviously, Pulisic was injured for a while, so he didn't have a huge amount of uh, of competition there. But uh, as you've just said yourself, if you want to see more of Hudson Odoi and maybe of Pulisic, that means seeing less of players who have played a lot of minutes. And Werner's played the the second most Premier League minutes behind. Conte, uh, this is a, a, a pretty tough spell for him right now, isn't it? 12 without a goal. And if what you guys are saying is what I think you're saying, maybe not an obvious place for him in this Chelsea team right now. I think in terms of position, there is a big question mark. Um, I wouldn't disagree at all with, with what Tom said earlier about his best position. Um, it's almost, it's not really about the formation for me. It's just about the zones he's getting into. He likes being in, in the inside left position. He likes playing off generally playing off a, a bigger striker. Whether you do that from a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, whether it's from a number 10 position or from the left, I think you've got to get him into those zones. I wouldn't be too harsh on him in terms of his um, performances so far. I think, uh, you know, Tom has come up with some numbers that shows the XG is very good for him. What what hasn't been there is the finishing. But then, as I say earlier, he's hit the woodwork five times. So he's really not far away from turning a pretty mediocre goal return into a good one. And I would say of all the Chelsea players, he's the one that really has to start because he's the one I'm most convinced will come good. You look at his record in the Bundesliga, 28 goals last season. He was absolutely sensational. Um, I think he will eventually come good for Chelsea. Um, I, I think there might need to be a system change to 4-2-3-1 to see the best of him. But yeah, of all the players Chelsea have, I would be more inclined to build the team around Werner than, than anyone else, to be honest. Yeah, the style that Michael mentioned there, I mean, we, we mentioned it recently on the podcast that Werner's XG per 90 was level with Harry Kane since just that one had taken the chances and, and the other hadn't. And yeah, that's, that's very much still the case. Werner's had chances worth six XG, he scored four. And it does feel like if a couple more of those went in, the whole narrative of, of Lampard and bad performances and everything kind of disappears because uh, a couple of draws becoming wins or, or losses becoming draws suddenly changes the outlook on on the whole league and the whole situation, really. But yeah, I mean, looking at uh, Werner's XG, he definitely is, is more well-suited to the left than up front in this Chelsea system. Um, my only worry uh, at the moment is, and it's something which I kind of, or well, we kind of failed to mention last time, is of course there's more to being an attacking player on this left for Chelsea than just scoring goals, getting into goal-scoring positions. And I use some data from Smarter Scout in the piece uh, to kind of highlight the fact that Werner's ball retention has actually been really, really bad for a player who's involved in, in linking the play and uh, and getting on the ball quite a lot, but actually turning it over quite a lot as well. And I do think that if you change the system to a 4-2-3-1 or, or something which you can get more help around him or at least only use him as that kind of the finisher of a move instead of involved more in the build-up you can kind of mitigate that risk of, of him being quite turnover prone make sure that his role isn't in the build-up give that to someone else uh, and make sure Werner is the guy making the runs and, and getting on the end of balls in the box uh, I think that's where you you'll get most of the value out of Werner and, and hopefully change the perception of, that so far he's been uh, you know not a great signing okay I think we've bounced around a, a fair bit looked at a lot of individual players and and the setup of the team in general let's try and tie things together towards the end here and focus on Lampard himself uh, as Chelsea manager as a manager Michael he's 18 months in to his spell in charge at Stamford Bridge 
And I wonder if you could attempt to explain or describe his general tactics or principles uh, when managing Chelsea. Yeah, I'm not sure he has a specific philosophy. I think broadly he wants what most managers want in in the modern era, which is possession football and to uh, press aggressively when possible. But that's quite standard these days. I think he's shown tactical ability at some terms. Um, We covered on this pod, I think roughly this time last year with, with Liam um, he's made some good decisions for, for big games. I think his back five against Mourinho's Spurs last year was very effective. That was a really big win for him against his, his former boss, obviously. Um, I think it's tough to see an overall plan. But at Chelsea, it's, it's generally not about philosophy. It, you know, it's about getting the job done. It's about winning games. And it's generally about star players, I would say. I think Chelsea is a culture that, uh, you know, they make lots of expensive signings and they want the best from those individuals. And it's not always about a really cohesive team. Um, so I don't think that the complete absence of a specific philosophy has to be a barrier to success. But yeah, there are some question marks in terms of, I'd say in particular, the organisation without the ball in, in big games. Um, yeah, I, I kind of would back up Michael's point that, you know, Lampard's team's it's tough to pinpoint a specific style on them. I mean, when you're looking at the stats, there's not really any metrics in particular that they are top of. I mean, they're, they're largely average this year, at least in, in PPDA and, and various other pressing metrics, um, which I think we've touched on the pod before about how there's been a, a big drop off in Europe in the levels of pressing. But that's definitely the case for, for Chelsea this year. They, they are far less aggressive than they have been previously. They do like to have the ball a lot. And obviously they're, they're one of the more one of the sides which average quite a lot of possession in matches. They average quite a lot of sequences with 10 or more passes as well. So it's not just, there is kind of a, a quite a focused approach to build up, but I wouldn't say it is a, you know, it identifies Chelsea quite like Pep and his kind of approach to building up does does with City. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely just intrigued the fact that it's similar to maybe Solskjaer, but maybe less pragmatic that, Again, this is just a manager who's fairly young in his managerial career, really. Hasn't really had time to fully found, you know, a system that, that he likes a lot or suits him. Um, and that, again, with, with Arteta, we've seen us sort of change styles a little bit. This year, obviously, crossing is, is the thing that's in, in vogue. Maybe this is just a case of him being a young manager, still working things out, still finding what works and what doesn't. And that, you know, identity for managers comes through experience and time of the job more than mm. more than anything. One of the things he, he often talks about in press conferences is moving the ball quickly. Uh, and I always find that interesting because certainly on frequent occasions this season, that has not been the case on the pitch. That is not married up with watching Chelsea and, and uh, that clearly frustrates him. And you have to sort of wonder how much of that should be down to him anyway. Um, Michael, looking forward now, they've got Fulham away and Leicester away next up in the Premier League, uh, followed by Wolves and Burnley back-to-back home games. Um, To arrest this poor run of form that we discussed at the top of the show, what are the key things that need to happen to improve results? Well, I would say very simply, I think they need, uh, first and foremost, they need to be better at finishing. They need to be more efficient in the box and I think Mendy needs to improve a little bit as well and like I say if they're finishing and their goalkeeping was at normal levels I think they'd be a top four side there are other issues I think particularly the structure of the midfield but I don't think they're that far away from being at a pretty acceptable level and Tom that's interesting isn't it because better in both boxes tell me if I'm wrong here it feels like from a from an underlying data perspective that's the sort of conclusion that makes it quite hard to pin this entirely on the manager. It feels like 
when it comes to finishing, and we're not just talking about Werner, but the team as a whole, uh, and when it comes to saving shots, where we are basically just talking about Mendy, I mean, there's not a ton that Lampard can do about that, is there? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Just you know, what what are the factors that Lampard and Chelsea can control? Um, and I do think, yeah, you're right on the, on the attacking end. It feels of Werner if he's so clinical in seasons past in the Bundesliga, then surely that's something that. You know, would translate to the Premier League. He's still getting a decent number of quality chances per game, which to me says that you know that element of his game is, is translated well, and the finishing will will come in time. On the flip side, it is interesting that you look at kind of the xG of the chances that Chelsea concede and the post shot xG. So that's again kind of where in the goal mouth that that shots are, or even if they're on target, um, is higher. So I wonder if there's an element of there's a minimal impact in terms of the centre-backs, the defenders, in terms of suppressing shots, making them difficult to you know get on target or making the angles narrow enough. There was a good example of the weekend against City where I think both Zuma and Thiago Silva were so aggressive in charging out and trying to, to chase the ball down that it led to Phil Foden with acres of space to kind of tap home in the box. And I do wonder if that is a recurring theme such that there is an impact of the defenders on actually not making Mendy's life easier and whether anything to do with Mendy's performance is just systemically down to how Chelsea have been defending at the back. But I think that's one that we need a bit more data on before really saying that that's uh, what's what's happening regularly. Well, there might not be much longer to build data on Lampard under Chelsea. If uh, Simon and Liam's report was accurate from the other day, there's obviously been a lot of reaction to reports of, of the Chelsea hierarchy starting to plan for alternatives. And one thing that's that has sprung up a fair few times from those defending Frank Lampard who want him to stay as manager at Chelsea, one sort of regular response is that it took Jurgen Klopp three years to get Liverpool to, to even close to where they are now, where they've been the best team, certainly in England for the last 18 months, two years. What do you say to that, Tom? The whole thing with Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool is definitely and obviously a reflection of the temperament of the owner, the sh- the short termism of the Chelsea owner, and, and just the the situations that each manager found themselves in. Now, Klopp was probably told to start with, "We are a club that doesn't throw money straight away at problems. We want to promote and build internally, and this will be a a long term project." Whereas with Chelsea, it's very much Lampard's had one season. He's probably decided these are the areas we need to target and spent £250 million in the transfer market. And that is just a reflection on the strategic goals of, of each of these teams. Um, so yes, it, it definitely is it's difficult to to compare them like with like really. I thought Jamie Carragher hit the nail on the head on Monday Night Football this week really well and, and kind of said that when managers get in a slump like Lampard has recently, they have experience to get them out of it. And, and Klopp has years of experience managing Mines and then Dortmund. And then obviously he has, you know, four or five years at, at Liverpool under his belt as well. And with Lampard, uh, again, like I said earlier, he's still going through some of these challenges for the first time. And he doesn't have answers in his notebook of what did I do in this situation last time? Because it's sometimes this is the first time he's been dealt £250 million worth of new players and charged with finding a tactical system that fits them all imperfectly challenges for the title in his second season in the Premier League so yeah I I definitely agree to some extent that it's just circumstance the fact that Klopp had more time and less pressure than Lampard has and that's just the way that these two clubs are kind of run really yeah I think it's a a different situation from Liverpool Liverpool had a a gradual overhaul I'd say one or two big names or first teamers per window or per year I think that's probably the better way to do it, to integrate them gradually. I think it's quite tough what Lampard's got to do in terms of 
introducing five or six new players into the side, many of whom are playing in the Premier League for the first time, especially in a season where you don't get much time on the training ground because there's so many matches. I mean, Lampard is a funny one. I was really surprised when they appointed him. I didn't really see what he did at Derby to deserve the job. He then performed better than I expected last year. So I was wary of being too critical because I think getting uh, Chelsea into the top four was a, was a decent job in his first campaign. Now I think Chelsea are in a bit of a dangerous situation because I don't think he's. I don't think they've been bad enough looking at the underlying numbers uh, for him to lose his job. Um, but equally, I'm, I'm far from convinced that he is the manager to take them forward in the long term. And I think there is a slight danger that they will stick with him and they could waste time really with a talented squad. So um, for me, it, I mean, it's very difficult to predict what Abramovich is going to do. But I don't really understand why he would appoint Lampard as a completely inexperienced manager and expect an immediate solution or an immediate kind of title challenge. I think if you're going to go for a long-term plan, you've probably got to stick with him in the long run. But uh, yeah, as I say, the decision-making isn't always uh, logical at Chelsea and it's certainly not transparent. So I really don't know what to think about his long-term future. Well, so many different parts of this to to break down. And thank you guys so much for uh, doing so. It's certainly given me a lot of food for thought the last few days uh, in terms of the the Chelsea media narrative, it's been it's been very loud. Um, but I think the way that you guys have picked through this, uh, I think it's been really really interesting. And thank you very much for for giving us your thoughts. Um, I mean, you guys are outsiders, but of course we've got Simon Johnson and Liam and Liam Toomey uh, covering Chelsea for the Athletic. They will be covering this story uh, in every minute detail, both on site but also on the Straight Out of Cobham podcast, which covers Chelsea weekly. It's an Athletic podcast, just like this. This one and there are so many other good athletic pods as well so it's not just written content that you can get but also these podcasts advert free on the athletic site and app if you become a subscriber today you can go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking to pick up a deal of £3.99 a month for an annual subscription um, but just left for me to say thanks for choosing us today and happy new year thank you to Michael and to Tom for joining me on this podcast as ever please do get in touch with us individually or as a three on Twitter um, we're always after suggestions for future episodes you guys know us pretty well by now you know the sorts of things that we do and it's really great when we get sent in suggestions from you so please don't hesitate to get in touch with us there please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed as well so you can join us next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic The Athletic